This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Black Lights by Tom Jones, which was published in The New Yorker in October of 1992. Weird. Sleeping in the neuropsych ward at night, I sensed the presence of a very large rabbit under my bunk. A seven-foot rabbit with brown fur and skin sores who took long, raking breaths. I didn't want to do it, but I had to keep getting out of bed to look. The story was chosen by Rachel Kushner, who's the author of two novels, Telex from Cuba and The Flamethrowers, both of which were finalists for the National Book Award. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Deborah. So can you tell me why you chose to read a story by Tom Jones today? Because Tom Jones had died recently, and I had been influenced by his fiction um, and knew him and had briefly studied with him, um, I thought it would be a good time to revisit some of that work. Uh, The obituary headline in the New York Times said something like, um, Tom Jones, janitor termed acclaimed author, dies. And while there was nothing that was factually incorrect, as far as I know, in the obituary That sort of summation janitor turned acclaimed author seemed a bit mythologizing to me. So I thought it'd be an interesting opportunity to look at his work again and uh, have a conversation with you about it. Yeah, also quite reductive. Um, I mean, he did work as a janitor for for a period of his life, but that wasn't all he ever did. (laughs) No, and also he... uh, yeah, he, he he talked about he he was a janitor at a school where his wife was a librarian, and he did have you know some of the kind of macho trappings that go with that sort of summation. You know, he would um, he told me that he would drink cases of beer and lift weights on the roof of the school, but he also read quite a lot of literature while he was working as a janitor. The story becomes a little more complicated when you look at the timeline. Tom had gone to the writer's workshop at Iowa well before he worked as a janitor, and he'd studied with people like Raymond Carver. Um, He had these boxer dogs that he said were descendants of dogs that had originally been owned by Carson McCullers. Hmm. He was steeped in a kind of literary culture, and he read fiendishly. He read everything. In his own way, he came across as a sort of intellectual. He wasn't just, you know, janitor turned author. Right. What was he like as a teacher? Um, yeah, he was very funny. He had a kind of charisma, which in a way is a type of teaching talent when you can draw people around you. I found him very funny about other writers and talking about literature uh, was of value. I remember the summer that I studied with him, I had been on a Cormac McCarthy kick and so had he by coincidence. I mean, again, it was the early 90s and I just think a lot of people were reading Cormac McCarthy. He had just... (laughs) you know, published All the Pretty Horses and everything that came before it, I had uh, sort of devoured in one long stream. And I asked Tom if he'd read those books. And he said, yeah, I read them all at once, just like you did. And he said, and then I felt like I had drank about 10 gallons of chocolate milk. (laughs) Which is a sort of very funny way of um, describing the peculiar density of Cormac. As a teacher, he was interesting. He He was a bit idiosyncratic and um, definitely focused on a world of trauma and of cultural references with which he was intimately familiar. 
I remember that I had him read a story of mine, and um, he was convinced that he was the person to help me with it and was even using boxing metaphors, like he was a particular coach and I was a particular fighter, and we were going to work together on this story. And I've thought about this now um, because it does seem a little comical, but I I think there's something underneath it that's more meaningful. Any place in the story where the character referred to some kind of suffering or physical problems that he had, Tom would write in the margin, napalm burns, question mark. (laughs) And any time the character referred to some place where something traumatic had taken place, I I think in the story it was something like Wisconsin, Tom would cross that out and write, Danang question mark. And it, it seems sort of ridiculous that he would want me to make my character into a Vietnam veteran. Tom himself was not in Vietnam, but had joined uh, the Marine Corps, had been knocked out as a boxer, and his entire Marine Corps division, from what I understand, went to Vietnam um, and was killed in combat. And he was very traumatized by that. And I think what he was really saying to me was, find the stakes in the story. Um, write about something that you know. And he was sort of using his own examples with me. And I think it was hard for him to get beyond those. And yet he he was making some kind of point. Vietnam and the sort of aftermath for a lot of uh, young Marines who went to fight there is kind of at the center of the story that you're about to read, The Black Lights. Why did you pick this one? Well, I think it's a really good story, and it does seem to somehow embody for me the particular mechanisms by which all of Tom Jones's stories seem to really work. There's a kind of unmanning in the story. He uses that term, and I kept thinking of it anyway. There's a sort of, um, not exactly a castration, but a person who has lost parts of himself. Um, He's been knocked out. He has seen what he calls the black lights, which I think is an expression that originated with Muhammad Ali about being knocked out so hard you see the quote-unquote black lights of unconsciousness. And he develops temporal lobe epilepsy. So in a way he loses part of reality um, because he's having continual extreme seizures. And there are other people in the story who've lost other things. And there's a way in which... Tom Jones's work deals with Vietnam in a manner that seems different than the cliches that we think of in terms of this Vietnam literature that came out of that era. There is nothing heroic in um, any of his work about the Vietnam War um, that I find. You know, this is not Martin Sheen drinking and punching a mirror in a hotel room. It's very ignominious what happens to people in war in Tom's Mm -hmm. work. And there's also a kind of edge of ridiculousness that robs people of the opportunities for more typically masculine heroism. Mm -hmm. We'll talk more after the story. And now here's Rachel Kushner reading The Black Lights by Tom Jones. The Black Lights Commander Andy Hawkins, chief psychiatrist of the neuropsych ward at Camp Pendleton, received the inevitable nickname Eaglebeak, or Eagle, early in his first tour in Vietnam when a crazy Marine attacked him out of the clear blue and bit off his nose. It became a serious medical event when Commander Hawkins developed a resistant staph infection in his sinuses, which quickly spread to his brain a danger that is always present with face wounds. 
To complicate matters, Hawkins was allergic to the first antibiotics administered to him and went into anaphylactic shock. When that was finally controlled, his kidneys shut down, and he had to be placed on dialysis as the infection continued to run rampant through his system. Hawkins developed a raging fever and had to be wrapped in ice blankets for two days, and weeks later, after his kidneys and immune system kicked in again, he came down with hepatitis B and nearly died from that. He resigned his commission, quit doctoring altogether for a time, and went to the Menninger Foundation in Kansas, where he did some work, work on himself. He wanted to regain some compassion for his fellow man before trying to go back into private practice. But his dreams of a successful civilian career were destroyed by the fact that he had no nose. He wore a tin nose, complete with a head strap, crafted by a Vietnamese peasant, and it made him an object of ridicule, led to a divorce from his wife, and prompted him to rejoin the Navy, where it didn't really matter that much what you looked like if you had enough rank. It mattered socially, at the officers' club, and so on, but not on the job. Commander Hawkins started out with a plastic prosthetic nose, but it was easily detectable, so he decided to make the best of a bad situation by wearing the tin nose and being upfront about it. He was always quick to point out that he, more than anyone, realized how absurd his condition was, and in doing so he attenuated in part the sniggering he was subjected to for wearing a tin nose. What bothered him more was what he imagined people said about it in private. He became a virtual paranoid in this regard. I was sent to Pendleton's neuropsych facility, that bleak, austere nuthouse, some weeks after defending my title as the first Marine Division middleweight champ in a boxing smoker at Camp Las Pulgas. I lost on a KO. My injuries resulted in a shocking loss of weight, headaches, double vision, and strange otherworldly spells. EEG readings taken at the hospital indicated that I had a lesion on my left temporal lobe from a punch to the temple that had put me out cold for over an hour. I was a boxer with over 150 fights, and I had taken a lot of shots, but this last punch was the hardest I had ever received, and the first punch ever to put me down. I had seen stars before from big punches. I had seen pinwheels. But after that shot to the temple, I saw the worst thing you ever see in boxing. I saw the black lights. There I sat in a corner of the day room on the Kelly Green floor tiles, dressed in a uniform of pajamas and bathrobe, next to a small, tightly coiled catatonic named Joe, who wore a towel on his shoulder. Here in this corner, the most out-of-the-way place in the ward, was one of the few windows. Occasionally, a Marine would freak out and bolt for the window, jump up on the sill, shake the security screen, and scream, I want to die, or I can't take it anymore, let me out of this motherfucker. At these times, Joe would actually move a little. By that I mean he would tilt to the left to give the screamer a little space. Except for me and one of the corpsmen, Joe would not let anyone touch him or feed him or change him. As I said, Joe wore a towel on his shoulder. He drooled constantly, and he would grunt in gratitude when I dabbed his mouth dry. Joe gave off a smell, 
Schizophrenics give off a smell and you get used to it. Sometimes, however, it would get so bad that I could swear I saw colors coming off Joe, shades of blue, red, and violet. And to get away from it, I would get up and walk over to the cigarette lighter, a spiral electrical device much like the cigarette lighters in cars. The staff didn't trust us with open flames or razor blades. Sitting next to Joe, I would chain-smoke camels until the Thorazine and phenobarbital that Eagle had prescribed to contain my agitated restlessness got to be too much, and I fell into heavy, unpleasant dreams. Or I had a fit and woke up on the tile with piss and shit in my pants. Alone, neglected, a pariah. The same corpsman who changed Joe would change me. The others would let you lie in your filth until the occasional doctor or nurse came in and demanded that they take action. I was having ten to twenty spells a day during my first month, and I was so depressed that I refused to talk to anyone, especially when some of the fits marched into full-blown, grand mal seizures which caused me much shame and confusion. I refused to see the buddies from my outfit who came by to visit me, and I did not answer my mail or take calls from my family. But as I got used to the Thorazine, I began to snap out of my fits quicker. I began to shave and brush my teeth and mingle with the rest of the neuropsych population. With Eagle as my living example, I had decided I would make the best of a bad situation. I would adjust to it and get on with my life. As a rule, there were about 30 men in our ward, the security ward, where they kept the craziest, most volatile Marines in all of Pendleton. Eagle seemed to regard me as super volatile, although I was anything but at the time. He always kept me at arm's length, but he would get right in and mix with really dangerous, really spooky, whacked-out freaks. I figured he was afraid of me because of my history as a recon Marine with three tours in Nam, or because I had been a boxer, but he was a doctor, and his fear made me wonder about myself. One day, a great big black man named Gothia came into the ward. I had been there about two months, and this was the first new admission I had witnessed. He was extra big, extra black, extra muscular, and extra crazy. Gothia was into a manic episode and talking fast. There was a Buick waiting outside with a general in it, and he and Gothia were going to fly off to the Vatican, where the Pope urgently awaited Gothia's expertise concerning the impending apocalypse. He kept repeating, It's going to come like a thief in the night, a thief in the night, until he had everyone half-believing that the end of the world was at hand. I immediately liked Gothia. He made things interesting in the ward. As my hair got long... Gothia arranged with the other brothers to give me a hair treatment, a kind of pompadour. It looked like shit, but I was flattered to be admitted into the company of the brothers, which was difficult, my being white and a sergeant and a lifer and all. A few weeks after he arrived, Gothia bolted unseen up the fence in the exercise yard, did the Fosbury flop over the barbed wire that topped it, and returned with a six-pack of cold malt liquor. I drank three as fast as possible on an empty stomach and had my first cheap satori. Though whether it was epilepsy or the blast from the alcohol is difficult to say. As I finished a fourth can of the malt liquor, sitting against the fence in the warmth of the golden sun, I realized that everything was for the best. 
Years later, I read a passage from Nietzsche that articulated what I felt in that 15-second realization. Becoming is justified. War is a means to achieve balance. Is the world full of guilt, injustice, contradiction, and suffering? Yes, cries Heraclitus, but only for the limited man who does not see the total design. Not for the contuitive God. For him, all contradiction is harmonized. Weird. Sleeping in the neuropsych ward at night, I sensed the presence of a very large rabbit under my bunk. A seven-foot rabbit with brown fur and skin sores who took long, raking breaths. I didn't want to do it, but I had to keep getting out of bed to look. Gothia, who never slept, finally came over and asked me what was the matter, and when I told him about the rabbit, he chuckled sympathetically. Hey, man, there's no rabbit. Just take it easy and get some rest, baby. Can you dig it? Rabbit. Shit. But by and by, my compulsive rabbit checks got on his nerves, until one night he came over to my bed and said, I told you there was no rabbit under the bed. If you don't stop this shit, I am going to pinch you. He said it louder than he meant to, and the corpsman on watch came over with his flashlight and told Gothia that if he didn't get to bed, he was going to write him up. I lay in the darkness and waited and listened to the rabbit breathe like an asthmatic until I had to check again. Whereupon, Gothia popped up in his bed and pointed his finger at me and shouted, There ain't no goddamn rabbit, goddammit. Knock that shit off. I shouted back at him, It's that rabbit on the Br'er Rabbit Molasses Jar. That rabbit with buckles on his shoes, bow tie, yeller teeth, yeller yeller. For causing such a commotion, we were both shot up and put in isolation rooms. It was my first experience with a straitjacket, and I nearly lost it. I forced myself to lie still, and it seemed that my brain was filled with sawdust and that centipedes, roaches, and other insects were crawling through it. I could taste brown rabbit fur in my teeth. I had a horror that the rabbit would come in the room, lie on my face, and suffocate me. After my day of isolation, a brig rat, a white marine named Rouse, came up to me and said, Hey, you can tell me. You're faking this shit so you can get out of the service, aren't you? Rouse, an S-1 clerk typist, a Remington Raider, who had picked up a heroin habit in Saigon, had violet slash marks on his arms and liked to show me a razor blade half he had in his wallet. He offered to let me use it and often suggested that we use it together. Rouse had a lot of back pay saved up and ordered candy and cigarettes from the commissary and innumerable plastic airplanes to assemble. He always claimed to have nasal congestion and ordered Vicks inhalers, which at the time contained benzedrine. Rouse would break them open and swallow the cottons and then pour airplane glue on a washcloth and roll it into a tube and suck on it. I got high with Rouse once by doing this, but the benzedrine made me so restless that I begged Thorazine from the guys who used to cheek it and then spit it out after meds were issued. Actually, Rouse was wrong about me. I didn't have anything to hide, and I wasn't faking anything. At the time, I didn't want out. I intended to make the Marine Corps my home. At group therapy sessions, I reasonably insisted that mine was a straightforward case of epilepsy, and for this I was ridiculed by inmate enemies and the medical staff alike. 
When I saw I was getting nowhere, I refused to speak at the group therapy sessions at all, and I spent a month sitting sullenly, listening to everyone argue over an old record player one of the residents had brought in to spice up the day room. The blacks liked Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. The war vets were big on the doors, the Rolling Stones, and CCR. I started getting fat from inactivity. Fat, although the food was cold and tasted lousy, and in spite of the fact that I fasted on Fridays, because Thursday's dinner was always rabbit. The thought of eating rabbit after a night of sensing the molasses rabbit under my bed gasping for air, and hearing the air whistle between his yellow teeth as he sucked desperately to live. The sight of fried rabbit put me off food for a solid day. When I had been on the ward about six months and my fits were under better control, a patient named Chandler was admitted. Chandler was a college graduate. His degree was in French. He had joined the Marine Corps to become a fighter pilot but quickly flunked out of flight school and was left with a six-year enlistment as a grunt, which was unbearable to him. I wasn't sure if he was going out of his way to camp things up so he could get a Section 8 discharge or if he always acted like a fairy. No one held it against him. In fact, a number of the borderline patients quickly became devotees of his and were swishing around with limp wrists, putting on skits and whatnot, and smoking Chandler's cigarette of choice. Salem. Rouse was the first to join in with Chandler by wearing scarves, kerchiefs, and improvised makeup. Rouse even changed his name to Tallulah. But Chandler wasn't just some stupid fairy. He was erudite, well-read, and well-mannered. He had been to Europe. Chandler turned me on to Kafka and Paul Valere. He knew how to work the library system, and soon I found that as long as I had a good book, I did not mind the ward half as much. Under Chandler's influence, Gothia somehow became convinced that he was Little Richard. After about the 500th time, I heard Gothia howl, It's Saturday night, and I just got paid, and Chandler respond, That's better, but try and put a little more pizzazz in your delivery. I was glad to see Gothia go. They transferred him to a long-term care psychiatric facility in North Carolina. In truth, Gothia was pretty good as Little Richard. He was better at it than Chandler was at Betty Davis or Marlena Dietrich, although at the time I had never seen Marlena Dietrich and had no basis for comparison. Overwhelmed by boredom one afternoon in the day room, as we watched Chandler execute yet another grand entrance, a little pivot with a serious lip pout and a low and sultry, hello, darlings, I confided to Rouse that I suspected Eagle of being a closet faggot, and shortly afterward I was called into the Eagle's den for a rare appointment. Obviously Rouse had snitched on me, I told Eagle that I thought he was a homosexual because he had surfing posters in his office, and I watched him scribble three pages of notes about this. Eagle's desk was cramped, and his office was hot in spite of a pair of 12-inch portable fans beating like they could use a couple of shots of lightweight motor oil, and I began to perspire heavily as I watched Eagle write. He was a spectacle, a tall man, cadaverously thin, with his long, angular legs crossed tightly at the knees, his ass perched on the front edge of his chair as he chain-smoked with one hand, flicking ashes into a well-filled ashtray on his desk while he scribbled in the notepad on his lap with his other hand. 
turning pages, lighting fresh cigarettes off the butts of old ones, scribbling, flipping the pad, seemingly oblivious of me until he looked up and confronted me with that incredible tin nose. Do you realize that you are sweating? It's hot. It's hot, he repeated. He looked down at his notepad and proceeded to write a volume. By now I was drenched with sweat, having something very much like a panic attack. Without looking up, Eagle said, You're hyperventilating. Everything was getting swirly. Eagle dashed out his cigarette and reached into a drawer, withdrawing a stained paper sack from McDonald's. Here, he said, breathe into this. I took the bag and started breathing into it. It isn't working, I said between breaths. Just give it a minute. Have you ever done this before? Hyperventilated? Oh, God, no, I felt like I was dying. Eagle pushed himself back in his chair and placed his hands on his knees. There's more at work here than just a seizure disorder, he said. I'm seeing some psychopathology. It's that fucking nose, I said, gasping. I'm freaking out. You don't like the nose, Eagle said. Well, how do you think I feel about the nose? What am I supposed to do, go off on some island like Robinson Crusoe and hide? I didn't mean that, I said. It's just... It's just too fucking weird, isn't it, Sergeant? Yes, sir, I said. Not normally, I mean, but I'm on all this medicine. You've got to cut back my dosage. I can't handle it. I'll make you a deal. I'm going to cut you back if you do something for me. The paper bag finally started to work, and everything began to settle down. What? Eagle removed a notepad and pencil from his desk. Take this. I want you to jot down your feelings every day. This is just between you and me. I mean, it can be anything. If you were a kind of breakfast cereal, for instance, what would you be? Would you be oatmeal? Would you be mush? Would you be frankenberries? Would you be Count Chocula? Eagle reclined in his chair, extracted a lucky strike, and lit it, with the same feminine gestures, I noted, that Chandler used to light his Salem's. Eagle had very broad shoulders for such a thin man. The sleeves of his tropical uniform were rolled up past his elbows. He brushed what few strands of hair he had back across his shiny pate, it was impossible to ignore his nose. He looked like an enormous carry-on bird, and although I knew I could break him in pieces, he terrified me. He took a deep drag and exhaled through his tin nose. Would you be a weedy? Don't try to fuck with my head, I protested, crushing the McDonald's sack. I got up and stalked out of Eagle's office, but that night, when I went to bed, I found the notepad and pencil on top of my footlocker. To disprove Eagle's theory that I was borderline psycho, I began to write what I thought were mundane and ordinary things in the diary, things which I thought proved my mental health. For instance, a good day, read, played volleyball, and had a good time smoking with the brothers. Picked up a lot of insight in group. Favorite breakfast? Shit on a shingle. 200 push-ups? Happy, happy, happy. I found such a release in writing that I started a diary of my own, a real one, a secret one, which I recently glanced through, 
noting that the quality of my penmanship was very shaky. January 11th, 1975. Sick. January 13th, 1975. Sick. Managed to read from Schopenhauer. January 15th, 1975. Borrowed some reading glasses and read Chioran. Sickness unto death. Better in the evening. Constipated. Food here is awful. There are bugs crawling on the wall and through the sawdust that is my brain. My personality is breaking down. I am having a nervous breakdown. Curiously, I don't have the stink of schizophrenia. March 14th, 1975. Vertigo. Double vision. Sick. Can't eat. March 18th, 1975. There is a smell. A mousy smell. April 34th, 2007. I am a boxer dog of championship lineage dating back to the late 19th century when the breed was brought to a high point of development in Germany. I have a short, clean brindle coat involving a pattern of black stripes over a base coat of golden fawn. At 75 pounds, I am considered large for a female. My muzzle is broad and gracefully carried, giving balance and symmetry to my head. In repose, or when I am deep in thought, my face is the very picture of dignified nobility. April 40th. My underjaw is somewhat longer than the upper jaw and is turned up at the end as it should be. The jaw projects just enough to afford a maximum of grasping power and holding power. But without the exaggeration and underbite you sometimes see in poorly bred or inbred boxers. Once my jaws are clamped on something, it cannot escape. My entire muzzle is black, my nose is completely black, the nostrils wide and flaring. My eyes are of a deep brown and are set deeply in the skull. I do not have that liquid soft expression you see in spaniels, but rather assertive eyes that can create a menacing and baleful effect when I am irritable. This is particularly the case when I fix my piercing stare on its target. I can burn a hole through steel and escape this Mickey Mouse jail any time I want, and I will as soon as I get my rest. Arf! April 55th. Before my accident, I was a circus performer with a simple-minded animal consciousness of the here and now. That I had been a great hero of the circus, the dog shot from cannons, the dog that dove from fifty-foot platforms into shallow barrels of water— the dog that rode galloping stallions bareback, that I was Boris, the Great One, a celebrated hero of Mother Russia, beloved by my countrymen, meant nothing to me. Eagle has me back in his little office, and he confronts me not only with my fake diary, but with my real one as well. I'm pissed that they've been rummaging through my personal gear. Let me get this straight. You say you were this circus dog in Russia, and you got a brain injury when you were shot from a cannon? I forgot to wear my safety helmet. So a famous neurosurgeon put your brains back together and sent you to a health spa. Only the VIPs went there. Nikita K. was there. I knew him. Dancers from the Bolshoi, army generals, KGB officials, chess champions. And you? A dog? I wasn't just a dog. I was the Rin Tin Tin of Russia. You're pretty bright and well-informed. How can you know all this kind of thing? 
because it's true, I said. How would you like it if I sent you to the brig? Fine, the brig would be fine. I'm a howling wolf. Put me in a cage or let me go. Eagle drummed his fingers on his desk, changing pace. Tell me something. What does this old saying mean to you? People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Finger drumming. Well, I don't know. A rolling stone gathers no moss. What does that mean? Don't know. Eagle began to write furiously. Why would anyone live in a glass house? It would be hot, I said, and everyone could see you. I hear you like to read Kafka. That's heavy stuff for a young guy. You're pretty bright. Have you ever read any books on abnormal psychology? Hey, man, just let me out of this motherfucker. I'm going down in this place. Put me in a normal ward and let me see a real doctor. I'll give it some thought. In the meantime, I'd like you to check this out, Eagle said, clapping me on the shoulder. He handed me a copy of Love Against Hate by Carl Menninger. Starlog, Janu-Feb, 2010. Gate is straight, deep and wide. Break on through to the other side. There was an old piano in the day room. When a Marine freaked out and broke the record player, Chandler started playing the piano day and night, driving me crazy. Canadian sunset over and over and over again. One night I rubbed cigarette ashes all over myself for camouflage, crawled into the day room recon style, and snapped off the little felt hammers inside the piano. Should have seen the look on Chandler's face when he sat down to play. This was not insane behavior. I knew I was not really insane. I was just a garden-variety epileptic temporarily off my game. Thrown a little by the war. I laughed and said to Chandler, Hey man, what's the sound of one hand clapping? After I put the piano out of commission, I noticed Chandler was losing weight. They had him on some new medication. He quit camping around and took a troubled leap into the darkness of his own soul. He grew quiet and started sitting in the corner with Catatonic Joe. A black Marine, a rotund and powerful murderer from South Carolina named Bobby Dean Steele, was admitted to the ward for observation, and he began to dominate. Despite the charges pending against him, he was buoyant and cheerful. He walked over to Joe's corner a lot and would say, Joe B. Doe, what's happening? What's the matter, man? You saw some bad shit in the NAM, didn't you? Well, that's okay. We're going to fix you up. Not those doctors, but us, the jarheads. We'll help you. I know you can hear me. Go easy, man. Bobby Dean Steele gave Joe back rubs and wiped his face, and in a matter of a few days was leading him around the ward in a rigid, shuffle-step fashion. The patients began to rally around Joe, and soon everyone was giving him hugs and reassuring him. One of the corpsmen warned me that catatonics often snap out of their rigid stupors to perform sudden acts of extreme violence. It was a catatonic who had bitten off Eagle's nose, he said. For a brief period during Bobby Dean Steele's tenure, my temporal lobe visions jumped more and more into grand mal seizures. Just before the fits, instead of having otherworldly spells, I felt only fear and would see the black lights of boxing. I was having very violent fits. 
In one of these I bit my tongue nearly in half, and for two weeks I sat in Joe's corner with Chandler, overloaded on anticonvulsants. My corpsman came by with a little spray bottle and sprayed my tongue. It had swollen so much that I could not shut my mouth, and it stank. It stank worse than schizophrenia, and even the schizophrenics complained. Bobby Dean Steele and I got into a fist fight over the tongue, and I was amazed at my ability to spring into action, since I felt nearly comatose when he came over to the corner and started jawing at me, kicking at me with his shower shoes. I got up punching and dropped him with a left hook to the jaw. The sound of his huge body hitting the tile was like that of a half-dozen rotten melons dropped on concrete. Bobby Dean Steele had to be helped to the seclusion room, but I was not required to go there, nor was I shot up. I guess it was because my tongue made me look miserable enough. When Bobby Dean Steele came out of isolation, he was so heavily loaded on Thorazine that his spunk was gone, and without his antics and good cheer, there was suddenly no character on the ward. Joe, who had seemed to be coming out of his catatonia, reverted back to it, but rather than seeking out his corner, he assumed and maintained impossible positions of waxy flexibility wherever he happened to be. It was like some kind of twisted yoga. I had heard that Joe had been at Quezon during the siege, and, like Jake Barnes in The Sun Also Rises, received a groin wound, that he had lost his coconuts. I often wonder why that is considered such a terrible thing. I brought this up and was roundly put down. Better to lose your sight, arms, legs, hearing, said Rouse. Only Chandler, who rarely spoke up any more, agreed with me. If there was a hot fudge Sunday on one side of the room and a young Moroccan stud with a cock like a bronze sculpture on the other, he said, I'd make for the ice cream. Eagle came to Chandler's rescue, just as he had bailed me out for a while with the diary idea. Eagle appointed Chandler his clerk, and in a few weeks Chandler began to put on weight. As a clerk, he was allowed to leave the ward under the escort of one of the corpsmen. Invariably, he went into Oceanside to the bookstores or to restaurants to gorge on big meals. He brought me delicious food in doggy bags and books. Dostoevsky, Spinoza, Sartre, the writers he insisted I read, and the lighter stuff I preferred. I was reading a lot and having fewer seizures. I had begun to get better. Chandler was better, too, and up to his old mischief. He constantly mimicked his new boss, and his devastating imitations were so accurate that they actually made me realize how much I respected Eagle, who had the advantages of a good education and presumably had a history of confidence and self-esteem, but now, with his tin nose, had been cut adrift from the human race. The humiliation of epilepsy had unmanned me, and I felt empathy for the doctor. At least I looked like a human being. According to Chandler, Eagle had no friends. Chandler also told me that Eagle would get drunk and remove his tin nose and bellow, I am the Phantom of the Opera, ah, ha, ha, ha. Patience came and went, and time passed. I had been in the nuthouse for fourteen months. I was becoming one of the senior patients on the ward. We got very good meals on the anniversary of the founding of the Marine Corps on Thanksgiving at Christmas. In fact, at Christmas, entertainment was brought in. I remember a set of old geezers who constituted a Dixieland band. 
They did not play that well, but it made for a welcome break in the routine of med calls, of shower shoes flip-flopping across the Kelly Green tiles, of young men freaking out at the security screen near Joe's corner, of people getting high on airplane glue and Vicks inhalers, of people trying to kill themselves by putting their heads in plastic bags, of the long nights in the ward and the bed springs squealing from incessant masturbation, punctuated by nightmares and night terrors and cries of incoming of the same cold, starchy meals over and over again, of a parched mouth from drug dehydration and too many cigarettes, of a life without hope. When the band took a rest between sets, two old farts, one white and one black, played a banjo duet of Shantytown that brought tears to my eyes. Then a group of square dancers came in. They were miserable-looking middle-aged types in western get-ups, the women with fat legs, you could sense their apprehension, and I realized that I had forgotten how frightening someone like Bobby Dean Steele, who had been copping an attitude of late, wearing an afro and a pair of black gloves, must have seemed to people like them. Once the music began, however, the misery was erased from their faces and replaced by a hypnotic expression as they mechanically went through their paces. From my folding chair, swooning on phenobarbital, overly warm from all the body heat, I was in agony until I saw, with a rare and refined sense of objectivity, that their sufferings and miseries vanished in their dancing as they fell into the rhythm of the music and the sing-song of the caller's instructions. And for a moment I saw myself as well. I saw myself as if from on high, saw the pattern of my whole life with a kind of geometrical precision, like the pattern the dancers were making, and it seemed there was a perfect rightness to it all. One day after chow, Bobby Dean Steele was summoned to the meds kiosk by one of the doctors, and a corpsman buzzed a pair of enormous brig tracers through the heavy steel door of the ward. They cuffed Bobby Dean Steele, while the resident on duty shrugged his shoulders and told Steele that he was being transferred back to the brig to stand general court-martial for three counts of murder in the second degree. It had been decided, Chandler informed us, that Bobby Dean Steele was not especially crazy— at least not according to Observation, the MMPI, and the Rorschach. Chandler told us that Steele would end up doing 20 years hard labor in a federal prison. My own departure was somewhat different. Eagle called me into his office and said, I'm sending you home. Don't ask me whether you're cured or not. I don't know. I do know you are an outstanding Marine, and I have processed papers for a full disability pension. Good luck to you, Sergeant. Thank you. I was dumbfounded. When you get home, find yourself a good neurologist and keep your ass out of the boxing ring. Yes, sir. As I turned to leave, Eagle saluted me. I returned the salute proudly, and I heard his booming operatic laugh start up after I pulled his door shut behind me. The next morning I collected over $9,000 in back pay, and I went out to the bus stop with my sea bag on my shoulder. A master sergeant came by, and I asked him what time the bus came. He told me that I could not leave the base until I got a number one haircut, and I told him to forget it, that I was a civilian. A moment later, a jeep pulled over, and a captain with an MP band on his sleeve hopped out. I showed him my discharge papers, the jump wings on my set of blues, the navy cross, and the two silvers, and he said, Big fucking deal. You got a general discharge, sergeant. A psychiatric discharge, Sergeant. 
I want you off this base immediately. Well, give me a ride and I'll be glad to get off the motherfucker, I said. I was beginning to see cockroaches crawling through the wet sawdust inside my skull, and I kept wiping my nose for fear they would run out and brush across my lips. You're a psycho, the master sergeant said. Go out there and wreak havoc and mayhem on the general population, and good riddance. You could cut me some slack, I said. I was a real Marine, not some rear echelon blowhard, and by the way, fuck the Corps. Eat the apple and fuck the Corps. I curse the day I ever joined this green motherfucker. I want you off this base and I want you to hump it off this base, the master sergeant said. You mean I don't have to get a haircut after all? I said in my best Nellie voice. Fucking hit the road, Marine. Hate Ashbury is that way. Well, fuck you, I said, and fuck you. Go fuck yourself. I threw my sea bag down and was about to fight when a Marine in a beat-up T-bird pulled over to the bus stop and asked me if I needed a lift. Without another word, I tossed my sea bag in his back seat and hopped into the car. Before I could say thanks, he hit me up for five bucks in gas money. It's 23 miles to Oceanside, he said, and I'm running on empty. I ain't even got a spare tire, no jack, no nothing. He looked at me and laughed, revealing a mouth filled with black cavities. He said, hey man, you wouldn't happen to have a cigarette, would you? I handed him my pack. Hey, thanks, he said. That's all right, I said. He lit the cigarette and took a deep drag. You want to hear some strange shit? Why not, I said. I just got six, six, and a kick. The Marine took another pull off the cigarette and said, six months in the brig, six months without pay, and a bad conduct discharge. What did you do, I asked. I was trying to stop the vision of bugs. AWOL, he said, which is what I'm doing now. I ain't going to do no six months in the fucking brig, man. I did two tours in Nam. I don't deserve this kind of treatment. You want to know something? What's that? I stole this fucking car. Hotwired the motherfucker. Far out, I said. Which way are you going? As far as five bucks in gas will take me. I got a little money. Drive me to Haight-Ashbury? Groovy. What are you doing, man? Picking your nose? Just checking for cockroaches, I said weakly. I was afraid I was going to have a fit, and I began to see the black lights. They were coming on big time, but I fought them off. What was your MOS? 0311, communications. I packed a radio over an I-Corps. Three purple hearts and three bronze stars with valor. That's why I ain't doing six months in no brig. I just hope the P waves us through at the gate. I don't want no high-speed chases. The Marine lit another of my cigarettes from the butt of the first one. Hey, man, were you in the war? You look like you got some hard miles on you. Were you in the war? Did you just get out? You're not going AWOL, too. That ain't no regulation haircut. Man, you got a head full of hair. On the run? How about it? Were you in the war? You got that thousand-yard stare, man. Hey, man, stop picking your nose and tell me about it. Arf! God damn it, are you zoned or what? Bow wow. I can't believe this shit. That motherfucker pee at the gate is pulling me over. Look at that. Can you believe this shit? They never pull you over at this gate. Not at this time of day. And I haven't got any identification. Shit. 
Buckle up your seatbelt, nose-picking man. We are going to motate. This fucking Ford has got a blower on the engine, and it can boogie. Hey, Ashbury, here we come, or we die trying. Save us some of that free love. Just hope you got some of that free loving. Save me some of that good pussy. The Marine slammed his foot down full on the accelerator. The T-bird surged like a rocket and blew by the guard post, snapping off the wooden crossbar. For a moment, I felt like I was back in the jungle again, a savage in grease paint, or back in the boxing ring, a primal man, kill or be killed. It was the best feeling. It was ecstasy. The bugs vanished. My skull contained gray matter again. I looked back at the MP in the guard post making a frantic call on the telephone. But the crazy Marine at the wheel told me not to worry. He knew the back roads. That was Rachel Kushner reading The Black Lights by Tom Jones. The story first appeared in the October 12, 1992 issue of The New Yorker and was included in the story collection The Pugilist at Rest, which was published by Little Brown in 1993. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Rachel, as we were, you were saying before, Tom Jones himself was a Marine and a boxer, and he had this brain injury in the boxing ring, which triggered temporal lobe epilepsy and left him with debilitating seizures. Um, he was misdiagnosed as schizophrenic. How how tempting is it to read this story as memoir? And is it wrong to do that? Well, it's a necessary question, regardless of how one should read the story. I actually think it's quite interesting to think about the narrator of the story as uh, a sort of proxy for Tom Jones and also as a narrator who is not necessarily dealing with um, what some people like to call consensual reality. When the story opens, he describes the the doctor who runs the psych ward at Camp Pendleton as having a tin nose. And it's not at all clear to me that that doctor, Eagle, as he calls him, is not another lunatic or one who just happens to be running this asylum. And it's not even clear to me that he's not a figment of the narrator's mm -hmm. imagination. Then when we get to the end of the story and the narrator encounters this AWOL Marine in a stolen Ford Thunderbird, quote-unquote, with a blower, it also seemed to me that it was okay to read into the details that this narrator, like Tom Jones, had suffered a debilitating brain injury 
had experienced these humiliating seizures was getting a psychological discharge from Camp Pendleton and would have to start over uh, with a very difficult, long, slow, uphill walk into making a kind of life for himself, which is, I think, what happened to Tom. I think it brings extra meaning to the end of the story to think about that because I don't believe that we're meant to take the ending literally, that there's this sort of um, delirious and victorious moment of blowing through the gate and driving to the Haight-Ashbury. I, I think that the reality underneath that is much drearier, and it somehow makes the ending, even as I can celebrate the deliriousness in it, it makes it incredibly sad. Yeah, I mean, sad. It, is, it is an incredibly happy ending on the surface. This man is freed, he's out of the psych ward, he's off to, to make a build a life of free love in the hate. Um, and even the, the details of his departure where they're bursting through the roadblock and, you know, heading off for the back roads. It's, it's a kind of a cliche of sort of movie endings. But in, in your reading, we shouldn't take any of that as reality. Well, I think when I first read that story, I took the ending straight and it, it's a kind of perfect short story ending. It ties up the story and it gives it a kind of a bow and um, it allows you to cease your speculation about these characters. Um, and it gives the main character in the story um, a kind of glory. But in reading it more closely, to prepare to speak with you about it, it started to seem more and more sad to me. Yeah. I started thinking about it in contrast to other endings, to other narratives that take place uh, in these kinds of institutions, um, like I mean, it's a novel, so it's different, but I was thinking of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and the way that Chief Brondon escapes at the end. Um, but it's unclear if he really does escape because the beginning of that novel is told from his perspective as if he's back in the mental institution where the whole novel mm -hmm. takes place. And by contrast, this ending of the story, it covers over something m much more pragmatic and slow and unglamorous. Mm -hmm. You know, I was going to bring up Ken Kesey and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. There's also, there, there's some of that similar sort of tragic absurdity and also maybe something of Dennis Johnson in the voice of this story feels as though there's, in a way, a sort of a, a genre of writing for dealing with these kinds of situations. I think that comparing Tom Jones to those two might also be an occasion for looking at what is sort of uniquely, and again, I'm going to use this word kind of ignominious for the narrators of uh, Tom Jones's work. Mm -hmm. Even with Tree of Smoke, I think um, the characters get to have a kind of macho heroism. Like even Bill Houston, that's one of my favorite things that's been published in the New Yorker recently was the brilliant excerpt um, from Tree of Smoke. Even kind Dennis of Johnson. yeah, with Dennis Johnson, um, you know, even when Bill Houston goes AWOL and is completely down and out and loses his shoes in Hawaii, he's still super cool, Bill Houston. <laughs> Whereas the narrator of this story has sort of lost part of his mind, um, yeah. and that seems much darker to me. You know, no pun intended with the title. There's a moment in the story where he's talking about Joe, the catatonic, and says that losing your coconuts, quote-unquote, doesn't seem like the worst thing. Mm -hmm. And um, it's so funny in a way. I mean, he's sort of saying that, you know, what symbolizes manhood may be something that he's okay with losing 
because he knows, and this is my interpretation, that there are many other things a person can lose, that you can keep losing things. You know, and so he's lost his mind. Eagle, the doctor in the psych ward, has lost his nose. Um, Joe has lost his coconuts. And then that final moment when the uh, Marine with a stolen car laughs, he says, I could see his black cavities. I sort of thought it was like an, another version of um, loss, like these sort of yeah. men or like part men struggling to survive. And I think that makes Tom's work a little bit unique, uh, you know, there really are no women in the story. I mean, to save for that reference to free love um, and quote unquote good pussy uh, that might be there for them in the Haight-Ashbury, which we can assume no one is saving any free love for these guys. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to bring that up. But what, what's fascinating to me is, is the character of Chandler who comes in and he's clearly gay. And there's he, he's, he's a gay man surrounded by uh, ostensibly at least formerly macho marines, and no one has any negativity towards him. And, and in fact, one of the others starts to put on makeup and, and call himself Tallulah. So there's there's not the resistance you would expect in a contemporary story about the military. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. I sort of assumed that, um, you know, just in the um, homophobic climate of 1975, which I assume is when this is meant to be placed because of the diary, yeah. that Chandler probably, you know, was not quote-unquote crazy and um, was actually being placed there for being gay. So maybe, you know, these men in this um, mental institution, the psych ward, share this kind of terrible common fate of uh, having been condemned to this place and can identify in what ways each man one to the next is not crazy. And they know that Chandler's merely gay. So, But it, it's, what's interesting is Chandler makes no attempt to, to seem cured, if that is his malady. <laughs> you know, he's... He's out there doing his Marlena Dietrich imitations. Yeah, I mean, well, maybe that has something to do with what happens to people in institutions. Because given the choice between gaining the respect of your fellow inmates, quote unquote, or proving to your superiors, the authority, that you're cured on a day-to-day -day level if you've lost hope in the idea of being released, it may mean more to entertain your fellow inmates and um, gain their respect. Yeah. I want to go back to the, what you brought up earlier, the, this eagle, the doctor at the beginning. I'm wondering why you think Jones made him our way into the story. You know, if, it was interesting to me that you think of him in a way as perhaps an imaginary figure in the story. The tone of the story at the beginning is slightly different than the register that the bulk of the story is told in, in my opinion. And it could be that that was just his way in. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes as a writer, you start something and you have to have a point of entry. And that may have been his point of entry. And the reason that I suspect that is because he speaks quite knowledgeably of the history of this Commander Hawkins. But he's merely a patient in the psych ward. I don't really know how he would know all this private information about Hawkins. And when he says that Hawkins spent some time doing work, work on himself at the Menninger Clinic, that seems like something that Hawkins would try to keep secret because the Menninger mm -hmm. Clinic is itself, um, as far as I know, 
a kind of psych ward. So he's letting you know that the person running this institution has himself had his own run-ins as a patient in psych wards. Right. We get that strange showdown between the two of them later in the story where the narrator's just sweating buckets and having a panic attack while Eagle is, is taking notes on seemingly nothing. What, what do you think is going on in that scene? Well, I know one effect of this scene that I think is really interesting is that in a sense, Eagle is challenging the narrator to suspect him of not being real. There's a question of whether or not Eagle is the narrator's hallucination. And in that scene, he sure is doing a good job of seeming <laughs> like a hallucination. But I think that what shakes out in that scene with Eagle recommending that the narrator um, adopt this new program of keeping a diary is actually meant to be helpful and therapeutic in the story. And in a way, it, it becomes a sort of like um, a package within another package within a package that he writes um, a fake diary for Eagle um, to produce therapeutic theater. And then he produces a secret diary where he allows himself to be um, uninhibitedly quirky, uh, mm -hmm. or if you want to say crazy. And then the eagle reads both, I think brings me back to the person who created this narrator and wrote the story, the author Tom Jones, who I know has said that writing for him when he really got into it after that first or with that first story, The Pugilist at Rest, which, um, you know, was published in The New Yorker from the slush pile, that writing was a form of psychological integration for him. So I think he's sort of reproducing that inside the story. Yeah, it's fascinating that then what happens is that he imagines himself as a Russian circus dog being shot out of cannons, which in a way is a great metaphor for Marine recon force going into Vietnam, just basically being shot out as disposable weaponry. But it also draws on, apparently he wrote a, the first book he ever wrote when he was maybe in college still was a young adult story about a Russian circus dog, which he drew on for this story. <laughs> so there's, there's, there's all kinds of circularity in there. Well, isn't it always like that with writing? I mean, yeah. um, I think that, you know, the writer encounters him or herself and his or her unconscious in a kind of dark alley when you write. And the same figures seem to lurk back there on various encounters. Um, but I also think with the dog in the story, the way it functions, he gets to keep um, some sort of heroism with that dog persona, having been a proud circus dog and, you know, retiring to health spas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a good contrast with the freaky seven-foot rabbit under his bed struggling to breathe, you know. Um, what do you what do you make of that rare rabbit? It, it, just terror, I think. And also facing a kind of unknown. I mean, again, that the image of having seen the black lights of unconsciousness, as Muhammad Ali put it, is as if you are suddenly forced to witness the illumination of something that's never supposed to be shown. You know, maybe there's a seven-foot rabbit with yellow teeth and breezes if he's suffocating in the unconscious of Tom Jones. Poor guy. Yeah, or, or just in that narrator's unconscious, you know, something, something that happened in Vietnam that's working its way back out. Right. I think I feel as though there may be underlying the story a kind of 
sort of survivor's guilt for all of these characters because they, they didn't die in Vietnam. They're back here. They're messed up. You know, for Jones, there was the survivor's guilt of, of knowing that while he was messed up in, in the hospital, his all but one of his unit was being killed, um, and he would have been there too. So you sense that there's just a sense of sort of death hiding under your bed, you know, someone someone struggling to, to stay alive or avoid it. I think that's true. I, I think that... <laughs> There, there, you know, there were a lot of grim components to the life of Tom Jones. He, you know, was himself in a psych ward at Camp Pendleton, as you mentioned, after he was knocked out in a boxing match. Uh, from what I read, his father, who was a professional boxer, committed suicide in a mental institution in Oregon. Actually, the same one where One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest takes place. And then, you know, there, there was something about Tom... In my own personal interactions with him, he did seem physically quite fragile. And he talked a lot about his physical ailments, his diabetes, and he talked about his seizures. And I think that the rug was really pulled out from underneath him, acquiring temporal lobe epilepsy. And so, you know, the story may stem from his own experience being on a psych ward, and probably the, the other people on that ward were Vietnam vets. What's interesting to me when you look back at his life is that, you know, he was he was quite, in terms of writing careers, he was quite far along in life when he published that first story. He was, uh, I think, 47 when The Pugilist and Rest, at Rest came out. So he put out two more books, two more story collections in the 90s. And then there was very little for the last 15, 16 years of his life. Um, you know, maybe one story in Playboy or an essay in, in Grant, I think. Do you know what happened in those years? I don't. Um, and um, to be totally honest, when I when I read the obituary in the New York Times, I was actually surprised that um, Tom had lived as long as he did because he seemed so fragile. Um, in terms of his writing career... I don't know. I didn't know him well enough, and we didn't stay in touch um, in the later years. But there's something about the work that, for me, seems to be like a transcription of scenes, visions, situations, and characters that almost arise whole cloth, as if they aren't generated through the act of writing, you know, that sort of um, plodding work of building ideas and people and moments in language, just word by word, phrase by phrase. With Tom's work, there's something about the way he writes. Part of it is um, just orally. There's a bunched series of declaratives that open almost every story, like a roll call of proper nouns. You know, like at the beginning of The Black Lights, it's not just a psych doctor, it's Commander Hawkins. Not just mm -hmm. a psych ward, but the psych ward at Camp Pendleton. Not just a war, but Vietnam, not just an accident, but an attack in which a Marine bit off the commander's nose. It's like he had these whole visions um, that he was transcribing. That's the way I imagine it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a density and an intensity to that engagement. And I sort of wonder if such a thing could be sustained or even if it necessarily needs to be sustained. Well, he said he wrote this story in three days. So you, you do have a sense of it just sort of bursting out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the sense that I have. Um, it may also be the case, though, that he was just too physically um, fragile to, to keep it up. 
So in the course of the story, there are kind of two spots where this narrator has has a sort of revelation. And the, f- the first is when he's drinking the malt liquor that, that you know, another character has, has jumped the fence and bought for him. And he uh, he suddenly realizes that that for God, everything is harmonized and, and war is just a way of achieving balance. And it's a very strange thought to be having among the unbalanced um, in that way. And and then there's another similar moment later where he's watching, he's watching the other patient's square dance and he understands that there's a pattern to his life too, that there's this beautiful pattern in the dance and in his life, though he never says what that pattern is. And I, I wonder what you what you think about that. Yeah, that's a great question because I um, also noticed the sort of perfect echo uh, of those two parts of the story. And the first is um, a harmony that he credits to Nietzsche as an idea, reading Nietzsche, who I I guess is referencing Heraclitus and the idea that war is necessary to produce a kind of synthetic harmony, I guess. And in the second scene, when he's watching the square dancing, it's really wonderful because it's like his own organic sort of heuristic version of the Nietzsche. He's seeing it happen in real space and time. I think it goes back to why Nietzsche is so attractive um, to sufferers. The idea of a love of fate when you are in a position of weakness and cannot control your fate I think is a kind of uh, succor. Mm-hmm. And for somebody like this narrator whose life has been affected by kind of monstrous structures and darker forces of which he does not have control. Um, he didn't choose to get epilepsy or to be knocked out or probably even to be a boxer to begin with. Some of that is probably just, he would see it as a sort of fateful progression toward violence and self-sacrifice that is, you know, man's fate. But uh, I think that landing upon an idea whereby what you've lost and suffered is part of what you've gained and the joys you've known and that they are all part of one dialectical and inextricable whole could be greatly comforting. Just feeling that there's a master plan. That there's a master plan, and then he sees the square dancers, and they're almost there for his private entertainment to illustrate uh, that plan. It's really quite sweet. Yeah, and then and then off he goes to enact his plan in in Haight Ashbury, <laughs> or 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 not. <laughs> well, thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Deborah. Tom Jones, who died in October of 2016 at age 71, was the author of three story collections, The Pugilist at Rest, which was nominated for a National Book Award, Cold Snap, and Sonny Liston was a friend of mine. Rachel Kushner has published three books of fiction, Telex from Cuba, The Flamethrowers, and The Strange Case of Rachel Kay. Her story, 57, was published in The New Yorker in 2015. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>